And so when I sort of put that to Molson, that's that's what I want to work on. Of course, he had a million ideas and he said, okay, well, how about this for an idea? (laughs) And he said, if most places on the planet, nature creates some sort of forest as an optimal ecosystem response to climate and geology and uh, landscape to optimise production and, and diversity from a sort of an ecological point of view. Why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, uh, literally, why doesn't it function like a forest? For example, why is it not dominated by perennial mm. plants? Why is it dominated by annual plants? And I said, oh, that is perfect. You know, that, yes, it's a design question, you know, but it's it's fundamentally looking at the design that nature creates and why aren't don't we appear to be using that mm. in our prime activity on the planet, agriculture, by which we feed ourselves? Uh, so, I, you know, I sort of regard that discussion as the seed of the permaculture concept. Welcome on back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer. This is episode 53, and this is a big one. I am so excited today to share an incredible conversation with a dear friend and colleague of mine, also happens to be the co-originator of permaculture, David Holmgren, speaking about his journey with permaculture design process throughout his whole life. So a bit of backstory. In 2017, David invited me to start running four-day courses on advanced permaculture design process with him. And we did three of those running before we cancelled this year's one due to COVID. And as part of those workshops, what we would do is we'd have sessions where he and I would share our, our, obviously his was a lot longer than mine, our journeys with permaculture design process. And it it just felt like a really juicy topic and I always, I really loved it. Um, participants always really loved it. And so I had it in my mind for a while to, why don't we get together with a high quality microphone and record this for the podcast, which he kindly agreed to do. And um, because to me, this is so integrally important to making permaculture stronger as a project, and I, and I believe has a lot of value for permaculture as a whole in general. And for that reason alone, I'm really excited to be sharing this with you all. I paid a transcription company to transcribe the audio. So we've, in the show notes at makingpermaculturestronger.net, you can go and find the full uh, transcript so you can read this conversation as an article, which both myself and David have edited also for, for readability. And David was kind enough to, to share a whole bunch of historical photos that, that line up with the text. So, so I really encourage you to visit makingpermaculturestronger.net and, um, and check the transcript and the photos out. Something else I'm excited to mention is there's been a bit of a delay on my usual two-week cycle of releasing these things because I've been putting a huge amount of effort into a, a project that's very closely related to this conversation, which is I've always been fascinated with David's very high capacity to read landscape, to to move through a landscape, even one he's never seen before, and unpack it and just really fathom and um, attune himself to the the underlying patterns and the way that biophysical and ecological and all kinds of different forces are expressing themselves uniquely in this particular spot in the world. And so I, I had the idea of, wouldn't it be great if someone made a documentary film about David Holmgren reading landscape, right? And um, 
And then along the way, I, I got a collaboration going with an amazing cinematographer, videographer, who's now a close friend, David Ma. And the idea came up, hey, what about if you tag along to some consultancy projects? Because what I would do from time to time is, is invite David in to come in um, on a project where I was working as a design, design process educator, facilitator. Um, and he would read the landscape with me and the clients early in the piece. And so I, I got David along, we recorded a couple of those. Um, and then it was like, well, why don't we just get some footage down in the gully with where, where David lives? Why don't we get some more footage? And, and slowly what happened was it dawned on me that someone was making this documentary film about David Holmgren reading landscape, and that someone was me. <laughs> so the two Davids and I are now very actively collaborating on this, and we've just released the website for the film, which is readinglandscape.org. And I really also encourage you to visit that. We're, we're going to attempt to, just using the website, to raise enough money to pay for the, all the stuff, the professional editing and color grading, etc. We've gotten a huge amount of super high quality footage in the bag. Last weekend, amazing weather, just on some incredible landscapes. Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And we'll no doubt keep you posted, but do check out the website, readinglandscape.org, if you get a chance, even if you just have a look and maybe let some people that might be interested know about it. You know, I, I, I'm not particularly good at using the internet to share such things. I'd like to think that there's enough genuine interest in the permaculture community and the importance of this work, you know, like capturing David in, in his prime, you know, 65, but he's still so vibrant and fit. You know, these, these days we get out shooting and... <laughs> you know, we start at nine or ten on site, and then like six or seven hours later, he's still dashing around the landscape, getting excited about stuff, and we're like, "Oh my god, we just need a rest." Anyway, before I recorded this this morning, I did a little bit of work in terms of tuning into my intention for sharing this conversation with David. I wanted to bring a real focus to it, and so what I came up with was this statement in terms of why why am I doing this? What and what what impact would I like this to have? You know, a lot of work's gone into it. What's, what's all this work toward? So what I put was, I'm sharing a compelling, accessible story about David Holmgren's permaculture design process journey in a way that energizes reflection, experimentation, and actual evolution in the design process journeys of listeners and phase two of making permaculture stronger. So as to grow the integrity rigor, and regeneration of permaculture as a whole. That excites me. That excites me. So we'll see what happens. But I, yeah, I'd, I'd love it if, if you find this useful and accessible and compelling, etc. Let other people know about it. It'd be really great to get this out there. I think it's very relevant to permaculture's story. And I'd like to think that these conversations themselves may be or become a nodal intervention in terms of really injecting interest and vigor into the conversation around design process as a core foundational aspect of permaculture. With that said, let's jump on in and I will check in with you again at the end. Welcome to the next episode of the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. And I'm super excited today. I'm, I've traveled about half an hour up the road and I'm sitting at a permaculture demonstration property and home called Meliodora. And next to me is David Hongren. Uh, good to welcome you here. <laughs> and I'm very excited to be here with this microphone between us. 
and to have this opportunity to have you share the story of your journey with permaculture design process over the decades from when before permaculture was a thing till, till afterwards and so I'm really excited to to take our time and, and, and draw that out and share make that more available share that with others yeah and of course that's something we've worked on together in in courses uh, our personal journeys uh, uh, with that and certainly through those courses that working together that's sort of elicited for me uncovered different aspects of understanding my own journey um, yeah through the the lens of design process I suppose you know thinking about it uh, in terms of childhood experiences I was always a sort of a constructor builder you know making cubbies constructing things and yet never had any sort of family um, role models for that my father wasn't particularly practical with tools and yet I was always in what workshop there was uh, in our suburban home as a a young child and so that thing of making things imagining things which are, don't exist and then bringing them to life was was definitely part of uh, childhood experience mm-hmm. I don't know particularly why in my last years of high school I had some vague notion that I might enroll in West Australian University in architecture. But I left to travel around Australia. I was hitchhiking mad in 1973. And in that process came across a lot of different ideas to do with uh, the counterculture and alternative ways of living. But most significantly, I came across uh, a course in Tasmania in Hobart called Environmental Design, and I met some of the students who were in it. And I'd realised by that stage that I was not cut out to, to do some sort of conventional uh, university course of any type, mm-hmm. uh, that I was too radical and free in my thinking and wasn't wanting to be constrained in the, within any sort of discipline or, you know, accounting for things through, you know, exam processes. Or, and what age were you at this? Uh, so I, I was 18 yep. at that time. Um, and this course in environmental design really attracted me. It had uh, a situation where uh, undergraduate students who were doing a generalist degree in Uh, environmental design were sometimes working on uh, projects with postgraduate students who were specialising in architecture, landscape architecture or urban planning. There was no fixed curriculum. Uh, There was no fixed timetable. Uh, Half the staff budget was for visiting lecturers and outside professionals. There was a self-assessment process at the end of each semester, uh, which then led to a major study at the end of the three-year generalist degree. Uh, And there was the same self-assessment process for the postgraduate thing. So you got up to the final finishing line and then had to show 
Wow. Your so, results. And that was to a panel that included outside professionals that you had a say in choosing as well as the staff did. Sounds suitably radical. <laughs> uh, it, I believe it was the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history. Uh, set up by uh, visionary Hobart architect Barry McNeil, who saw that there was no point teaching design professionals a specific set of skills because the world was changing so fast that by the time they came to practice, uh, those skills could be irrelevant and that you had to teach them more how to problem solve, how to think, and that they would find and develop the skills that were relevant uh, through that way. So, yeah, that's what really led me back to Tasmania the following year to enrol in environmental design. But as part of that first year, I explored a lot of different aspects. Um, I was actually doing the sort of backyard self-sufficient thing in a, a rented house and was documenting the, the organic gardens, the compost making, the um, baking bread at home, all of that self-reliance that I would call retro suburbia mm-hmm. now in a rented house was actually part of my study projects Um, you know but I was also involved in projects with postgraduate planning students working with urban conservation activist groups trying to stop high-rise development in the historic uh, Battery Point precinct and you know setting up shopfront information for the community to explain planning law and you know, plot ratios of how big you can build a building for how much open space and all of those uh, sorts of things. So ranged across, you know, quite a sort of a a diverse interest area. And, you know, met a lot of of people that had come to environmental design, if you like, as refugees from all the design courses around Australia. So it sort of gathered all the radicals, at a time when most people went to university in the state where they uh, lived, Mm. uh, whereas more than half of the students in environmental design were from outside of Tasmania. Uh, And, of course, the whole interest in ecology was a huge part of that and the crossover between uh, ecology and design. So that was a... theme of the of the school well it was something that was identified as a huge area of interest of so many students and at that time so much so that they felt they needed to have an ecologist actually on the staff you know because most of the staff of course were landscape architects uh, architects and and planners and uh, I was actually on the selection panel <laughs> as an undergraduate student for the person who ended up becoming my supervisor in the course. Uh, so that, yeah, was uh, a context where came across a lot of radical ideas in design. But I also still felt, you know, quite the outsider. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a particular seminar that was actually about the design of the Australian backyard. And people within the department were basically decrying how 
terrible, you know, backyards were designed and front gardens and, you know, people doing it themselves, how, how pathetic and right. hopeless it was. And I can remember being really outraged and getting up and on my soapbox and saying, look, this is one of the last things that Australians still do for themselves, is they design and create their own mm-hmm. gardens and backyard spaces. They, you know, hardly any of them build their houses anymore. Are we a radical design school intending to extend design literacy and design capability as a, a universal literacy? Or are we about commandeering and colonising another space, mm-hmm. taking something else off people and professionalising it. <laughs> so I have a strong memory of that being part of my early thinking about design, that design was a sort of a literacy that should be universal. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting for me to already hear, obviously, permaculture bells going off because there was already that pre-existing overlap between ecology and design and then mm. when you bring the flavour of being in control of your own design processes and designing your own spaces, you're well on the on that mm. trajectory already. Yeah. And did, I wanted to ask, at this stage, were you being presented with, it doesn't sound like it was that kind of school where they said, here's the design process you're all going to use for the rest of your careers, but were you getting a feel for a kind of a, an approach to design or a process mm. that, at that stage or was it still quite open? Yeah, there, it was it was very free and open. And I suppose within the design professions, environmental design was either regarded as the best course in Australia because, you know, it involved outside professionals. You had to do the postgraduate degree part-time and have a job in the field. So, you know, there was a, a huge amount of practical reality uh, that, you know... Uh, was encouraging to design professionals or other design professionals regarded as the worst course in Australia because people weren't required to actually sit at a drawing board and or you know or actually learn any particular thing you know classic principles of architectural design or uh, anything but you know I remember um, sort of being aware of, uh, you know, quite a strong interest in McCarg's um, ideas were, you know, one of the ideas that was uh, around. But there was also others that uh, sort of involved design in, in perhaps a different way, like George McRoby, a colleague of E.F. Schumacher, mm-hmm. um, famous for, of course, um, writing the book Small is Beautiful, which was published just a year before I started uh, environmental design. He was there for uh, six months teaching uh, the whole intermediate technology notions of design in an appropriate technology uh, suitable to scale, especially for uh, developing countries rather than just imposing large-scale systems that were uh, inappropriate. So there was certainly different design contexts and uh, uh, also, yeah, design process. But certainly not a, there was no clear didactic yeah. direction. The whole thing was a sort of a chaotic exploration. Really. And, and you, you said you were documenting what you're doing in the rental with the compost making and everything. Mm. Were you also paying attention at that stage to, you know, the, 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 the process side of things or...? Not... So much. I think I was sort of quite 
to some extent, outcome-oriented. Yeah. But, uh, you know, definitely grappling with that process of, of how you record your ideas and involve ideas on paper uh, rather than just literally starting something with your hands, which, you know, is sort of how a lot of people do things in the most sort of rudimentary design uh, process. So definitely that thinking through and documenting ideas and, and then sort of implementing those. But, you know, pretty... Uh, sort of, I suppose, limited investigations of the process. But it was in that uh, first year that my interest really gravitated around food production and more broadly uh, agriculture as humanity's prime way for providing for its needs and looking at that crossover between, if you like, landscape architecture primarily as a profession you'd say, and ecology and how that applied to agriculture. And I could see the overlap between two, but not between the three. Mm -hmm. And it was at that sort of pivotal time that I I met Bill Mollison. And he didn't strike me as a designer, and I don't think I was looking for that. I was very disappointed with um, the person who was... Uh, chosen as the ecologist on staff. and That you helped choose? Yes, well, I didn't get uh, <laughs> didn't the, get the person. Uh, that's another story <laughs> yeah. as, to, as to who ended up and who it could have been and mm-hmm. uh, other people who applied <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but um, I suppose I'd already come to sort of view about a lot of biological science was highly reductionist and that in fact, even within ecology, there was this tension between reductionist uh, approaches, which would be regarded as sort of mainstream approaches to science and, and the um, more holistic. So I was sort of very much looking for that. And when I met Bill Mollison, through chance, he was at a seminar in environmental design. He wasn't running it. He was just someone who made some comments in it that I thought were really interesting. And, you know, I went to speak to him afterwards and suddenly this opened up of, oh, this person thinks ecologically, holistically. And through a chance of him uh, inviting me to um, uh, come to his place, since I was looking for somewhere to live and I was also a bit disabled, I had a, a broken collarbone as a result of a motorbike accident, so... I suppose it was sort of him taking in a homeless waif, you could say, (laughs) Uh, that, um, you know, we began a discussion about what I might focus on in the second year at environmental design. I mean, at the time, he was a lecturer in the psychology faculty, um, a senior tutor, actually. And so, you know, the connection with design was sort of really not, through him uh, at all. And in a lot of ways, I didn't particularly, as as I worked with him, see him primarily as a designer. Mm-hmm. I mean, an amazing polymath, um, genius, and primarily a, a, an ecological thinker. Mm-hmm. 
And was he was he lecturing psychology at the same school? No, no, at, at the uh, older tertiary institution, okay. the University of Tasmania, where I, I was at the uh, new uh, College of Advanced Education, as it was yep. uh, then called, where the environmental design school was. And so, and, and you were saying he, you had this kind of um, hankering for a more holistic approach to ecology, and he was yeah. an example of that. So you, were you learning a lot from him? Early on, soaking that up. Oh, enormously. You know, so our relationship was very much student-mentor. And the seed of the permaculture idea sort of came in a discussion, uh, you know, towards the end of of, of 74 and in him asking me, so knowing how free environmental design was, so what are you going to work on next year? What are you going to look at and I said you know that I'm interested in this crossover between these three uh, things that don't seem to cross over at all. Can I just clarify you said you were clear how two of them overlapped was that the landscape architecture and ecology yeah the agriculture yeah I didn't I didn't see the uh, I saw overlap between uh, ecology and uh, and agriculture okay in uh, agroecology ideas early and organics uh, you know organic Farming was, was although organic farming sort of began in the 1930s, it was really incorporating early ecological ideas uh, um, in its reaction against industrial uh, farming. So I could see crossover of, of any two of them, with you, yeah. but not I couldn't see anywhere where all three yeah, were yeah. brought together. Um, so the agroecology, for example, didn't seem to have uh, uh, much of a design focus. Certainly not a, a physical landscape layout. How do things relate in space? Uh, it was mostly concerned with agronomy, husbandry. Um, you know those, those processes, um, uh, and. There was some crossover between landscape architecture and agriculture, but really as cosmetic design sort of overlay in some particular affluent parts or the conservation of agriculture in a larger sense, uh, like McCarg's work. You know, okay, where are we going to sort of protect agricultural land from inappropriate development? and uh, prevent sort of conflicts of different types of land use, the sort of whole zoning ideas, you know, but that was sort of treating agriculture as a sort of a system that there was some sort of planning design overlay, but not actually involved in in the essence of agriculture itself. And what did you talk about the overlap between design and landscape architecture and ecology? Yeah, well, uh, for example, one of my teachers in the course who had a lot of connection with Phil Simons, she was one of the first landscape architects in Australia to use uh, in quite a few of her designs uh, local indigenous species. So that very strong crossover that we, we had those early debates about you know native versus exotic you know in those years so she was one of yeah the pioneers of that sort of thinking that was already there of how does 
landscape design create um, ecologies that you know can support the diversity of yep. uh, of nature and especially indigenous. Yeah, yep. well, that's uh, great. It's I haven't heard it quite that way before. It's so clear, you know, and you, and you had yourself a very juicy question. Yeah, or, or a space of how would these things overlap that obviously yeah influence the course of the rest of your life. And so when I sort of put that to Mollison, that's that's what I want to work on. Of course, he had a million ideas, and he said, "Okay, well, how about this for an idea?" <laughs> and he said, "If most places on the planet, you know, nature creates some sort of forest as an optimal ecosystem response to climate and geology and." Uh, landscape to optimise production and and diversity from a sort of an ecological point of view. Why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, uh, literally, why doesn't it function like a forest? For example, why is it not dominated by perennial mm. plants? Why is it dominated by annual plants? And I said, oh, that is perfect. You know, that, yes, it's a design question. You know, but it's it's fundamentally looking at the design that nature creates, and why aren't don't we appear to be using that mm. in our prime activity on the planet, agriculture, by which we feed ourselves? Uh, so, I, you know, I I sort of regard that discussion as the seed of you know the permaculture concept. And so I started sort of working on the permaculture ideas, you know, when I started uh, the next year in 75. And it it basically consumed all my time, Mm -hmm. full time. And the staff were concerned that I wasn't doing anything else. uh, (laughs) But I was free to do that. And so Mollison and I were actually developing a permaculture garden at his... uh, uh, fringe, uh, property on the fringes of Hobart, two and a quarter acre semi-rural property, about the same oh, size right. as this, yeah, this yeah, place at Meliodora. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it had forest on it and it had a history of he'd owned it um, for some time and, of course, he'd uh, defended it and, and saved it from the great 67 uh, bushfires not many years before I, I was there. Oh. And there was other people all around in that area who were developing self-reliance as part of, you know, what we were on about, you know, at that time. And a lot of the interest initially in that was around what you would call economic botany, the exploration of useful plants from which we might, the components from which we might build um, uh, permaculture systems yep. and especially obviously perennial plants and especially trees so you know there were a lot of elements that weren't you know primarily design process in that yep. uh, yeah the you know and and in some ways you know I I have said even though I was sort of a bit separated and critical from a lot of what I saw in the in the design professions and even in environmental design, and I was sort of off on this other tack. And you know, Mollison as my mentor, who was not really a designer, um, 
you know, that in a way the the design side of permaculture sort of in a way came more, I see, through me, through the lineage of uh, environmental design and the, and the radical ideas of, of design that were uh, part of part of that school. Yeah, yeah. And and at this stage, in terms of the, I mean, it's a pretty. I mean, 1974 was a hell of a year. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Two years after the Club of Rome limits the growth report, one year after the first oil crisis that precipitated the Western world into the first uh, economic recession. Um, of course, 1972 was also the election of the Whitlam government in Australia after 23 years of conservative government and a whole huge sort of cultural uh, explosion of, of different ideas and different possibilities, uh, which sort of led to the great constitutional crisis of 1975 and of course, it was the end of the long-running uh, war in Vietnam and the eventually the American defeat yep. in Vietnam. Of course, Australia pulled the troops out in 72. So there was a huge sort of social and economic and political turmoil uh, at that time and an openness, uh, certainly in academia, to sort of new radical ideas. So... Environmental design as that radical school ran from 1970 to 1980, and then it was basically emasculated, turned back into a conventional design course and moved from its uh, Hobart base to um, to Launceston. Okay. Um, so it's very sort of emblematic of uh, the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, got your, you got your timing right. Well. <laughs> yeah, the timing for... For permaculture, generally, the huge interest there was in those sorts of ideas and, you know, related ideas in science, for example, the whole embodied energy concept, how we use energy as a a measure of uh, human systems. In 1979, I went to the ANZAS conference in Hobart and there were five papers on net energy analysis of agricultural systems. You know, move forward a decade, there would have been none of that. So there was a a huge interest in all sorts of things that, yeah, included also design process. I mean, just as an example of that first year I was there, that project worked on with the uh, Battery Point Urban Conservation. There was another project working as consultants to the State Department of Planning as to how to do for the first time a strategic plan for Hobart with community consultation. Because mm. up to that point, planning had just been engineers and stuff deciding, yep. you know, where they imagine freeways are going to be built and new urban expansion and, and whatever. And so all of those ideas of people being involved in design process on in things that affect them uh, at that social level was, of course, part of that, that, was in the, that in period. The, in, the, in, the, in the atmosphere. And, and would you say that the, that the period of, I guess, in a way it sounds like that, that pivotal conversation about what you're going to do with your project next year, 
was a was a kind of a, a moment. And then did that culminate uh, yeah. with permaculture one, or what? What was the? Yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways for me that that did uh, uh, culminate in the publication of permaculture one in 1978 and the huge interest that there was. Whereas you know for Mollison that was a stepping stone moving out of the university, you know, uh, giving up his um, tenured <laughs> position and going to sort of uh, spruik permaculture to the world, uh, not just through the counterculture and, you know, the first areas of interest, but sort of more broadly and huge popularisation. Whereas I felt at that time not quite a fraud, but I didn't have the broad base of experience uh, that Mollison had in so many areas being a generation older than me, apart from anything else. So my interest was in building my practical skills, and I decided I uh, definitely wasn't. Uh, in 76, I completed the environmental design degree Um I didn't go back to do the postgraduate degree because I was actually at that stage so, I suppose, sick of or beyond wanting to think about things academically and I wanted to do things with my hands. Mm. And initially, a lot of that, well, it already was happening as gardening, forestry, uh, ecological hunting, but also a, a, a big... Uh, role in building and uh, you know build a uh, a big timber barn on a property that Mollison and I and others had uh, bought and to develop as permaculture place and then I worked with a friend of mine who was a builder who was my age and ran his own building business as his offsider and we were doing yeah quite complex building projects and learning by doing and really for me I didn't like the idea of design in whatever field disconnected from the practice of if you like implementation that that separation couldn't it wasn't really viable Mm -hmm. and apart from its sort of class implications of there's the designers then the plotters who implemented I didn't respect any of that sort of idea so I was yeah I was much more sort of interested in sort of doing stuff and building a a skill base but in that process I was really went through um, several years really I suppose beginning about uh, 76 with starting to build a skill base for advising other people so a sort of a it was self-directed apprenticeship, really, um, working on other people's projects, um, some paid, some voluntary, um, you know, doing the odd design consultancy. And then that led to my mother, um, out of the blue, buying uh, in late middle age uh, uh, 180-acre rural uh, bush property on the far south coast of New South Wales. And I thought, mm, I need to go and help her get set up and build a proper, proper passive solar house and get gravity-feed water supply systems and 
you know, appropriate fencing so she can have gardens and, yeah. and it be fire safe and, and in fact sort of implement all those ideas. So, you know, I'd been working at that stage, you know, continuously from uh, when I left environmental design at the end, uh, graduated at the end of 76 to 79, those three years I'd worked, um, you know, incredibly in lots of different ways, but I'd also discovered my second mentor, really, uh, in New Zealand, uh, Hakai Tane, who sort of in a way I regard as my second mentor in permaculture. So I met Hakai at the uh, Down to Earth Festival organised by uh, ex-Deputy Prime Minister Jim Cairns as part of the countercultural movement in Australia, the Down to Earth movement. After I'd been there at that festival with Bill Mollison, where there was this huge interest in permaculture, I hadn't seen Bill for quite a while, and we ran a, a workshop under a big shady tree with that about 150 people came to. And uh, anyway, I... Uh, I met Hakai after that workshop and we wandered around this thousand acre grazing property um, uh, exploring things and uh, looking after he had given me a comment about something that Mollison had said that just made me sit up. He, he said, oh, Mollison mentioned that this degraded grazing land needed gorse spread over it, which is, of course, a, a noxious weed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, so it would improve the land, um, you know, damaged by all the sheep uh, overgrazing, typically sort of uh, confrontational sort of thing. For, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hakai said, I'm not sure that I agree with Mollison about gorse. As a, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a conventional argument about... Um, uh, invasive exotic species and he said i think briar rose is a more appropriate species for this which is of course another spiny noxious <laughs> weed and you know i thought who is this guy you know like what does he know <laughs> and you know we spent a whole lot of time looking around that landscape and his knowledge in reading the landscape just fascinated me and we spent days together and he invited me back to New Zealand to, to help set up permaculture in New Zealand, the Permaculture Association of New Zealand. He was already a, a member of the, um, the Farm Forestry Association of New Zealand, the Soil Association, the Organic um, Organisation, and the Tree Crops Association. But he was actually trained in land law uh, so he had a legal degree and planning and uh, and geography uh, and had studied at ANU, knew the Monero country very well, worked in British Columbia, but was really had adopted New Zealand as his sort of uh, not just home, but sort of like spiritual home almost and taken a name which was... Japanese and Maori, <laughs> uh, but was originally Australian. And again, uh, much older than me, but not 
as many years difference as uh, with Mollison. So in working with Hakai in New Zealand in 1979 and then 79, uh, yeah, and then again in uh, 84, uh, he taught me a lot about the whole land systems approach to understanding uh, land. Uh, he'd actually done the land system study for the New Zealand Lands Department in the high country, uh, dry cold grazing country of the South Island. Uh, so mapping all of the, uh, the land in a way that integrates the geology, the topography, the climate, and what he called the biophysical resources that express those underlying energetic and geologic uh, forces in soils, plants and animals. And that that was the basis of what we would call sustainable land use. You had to sort of have everything mapped onto those things, both at a large scale, but also down at a fine scale. Can I ask, because I know... You learned a lot of holistic ecology with Mollison, and you I know you moved around the country a lot. And mm-hmm. so what was the difference in, in reading landscape? Was it kind of like going, going deeper or was it in a different direction? Or? I, look, I was already in that mm. process of reading landscape but, um, in the early research for uh, permaculture because I would go and visit uh, old forest arboreta and abandoned gardens places where people had done stuff and then nature had sort of taken over. I found those much more interesting from a permaculture point of view to give instruction as to what is this sort of intersection between humans doing stuff and and nature doing stuff than going to some pristine wilderness. So I was already developing those skills and a lot of that was about ID. What is this tree? What... You know, where is it growing? Why is it there? Those sorts of things. So when I met Hakai, his mastery of that and especially a deeper understanding of soil, not in the sense of the agronomists focusing on, you know, what's the condition of the A1 horizon, the topsoil, but understanding the regolith, the deep um, structures underneath that often determine uh, you know, the moisture availability and possibilities of deep nutrient mining and of different geological strata that would produce quite different ecosystems and had quite different potential to be uh, developed and quite different vulnerabilities to land degradation mm-hmm. processes. Is, is, that a, is that an actual word, regolith? Yeah, that, that, that's the, d- describing the material underneath from which... Yep soils emerge, whether that's the bedrock or deep deposits of alluvial um, material. And in New Zealand, the newness of the country compared with Australia made all of those reading landscape skills so much sharper, so much easier to see, whereas in Australia, a lot of the processes are so subtle, so ancient, it's harder uh, to see them. Uh, you know, there was also understandings that Hakai convinced me that the sort of 
permaculture vision of broad acre integrated land uses of agriculture, horticulture, aquaculture, beekeeping, forestry, all of these things being integrated together couldn't come about under our uh, freehold land tenure system. So that understanding like from land law and from history of our ancestors uh, before modern land title and the enclosures of the commons and all of those issues learnt that, yeah, the way we own and control land is actually a huge factor in how it could be designed. Uh, so it was sort of drawing me into understanding those sort of uh, cultural institutional uh, forces uh, that shape uh, design. But I suppose the most important, really, learnings with Hakai was clearly moving away from a sort of master plan, architectural, design it on paper and then implement it idea, which is always a bit was problematic when that methodology was taken from designing a building to firstly trying to design um, a garden because you're dealing with biological entities that change and, and, and a whole lot of complexities about soil that you don't fully understand or shifting it to urban planning where cities are so big and complex that it's not sort of really possible for that to work. Um, you could say, of course, that, um, you know, Christopher Alexander was very strongly critiquing that within architecture too, that, that it doesn't really work. And I was sort of vaguely aware of of that critique mm -hmm. because Alexander was one of the thinkers that was, you know, influencing people in environmental design. But because my focus was more biological, I didn't sort of pick up so much on, yeah. on his work. But Hakai sort of really introduced the framework of strategic planning, which had sort of become a tool in the planning profession, but really came out of the military uh, as he explained it, where they had to act with limited knowledge and where they didn't control all the factors. Yep. And that that idea of having frameworks of action, uh, but you don't really know how that is going to express itself in final design form. Uh, and we started applying that to how does that strategic design process apply to what we call tree crop agriculture, all the interest of how do you not just have grazing animals around a landscape or annual crops, but these permanent long-lived structures of tree crop systems that were sort of a lot of our central focus because, like me, he was a, a tree crop nut. <laughs> he was, you know, obsessed with trees. Uh, and so, you know, that application of that sort of design process uh, was very much part of the mm -hmm. learning from yeah, working well, this with is, him. This is really, really fascinating. And going, you were saying earlier before you even met Harkai that one of the reasons um, after the origination of permaculture where Mollison took off around the world and, and made it 
public, shared it, and you, and you you had that sense of wanting to get more hands on skills and building skills, and you mentioned the non you you, were, you had a sense of that that it wasn't viable to have a separation between even if in some cases white collar design and blue collar implementation, but that, mm. that was already a an irk, and it sounds like yeah, Harkai, very early on, yeah, that was already there, and then Harkai really helped you, yeah, because he was very sort of practical hands-on as well as working at this high-level consultancy to uh, to government and even uh, um, business uh, but uh, you know later on he he did a review of the oh no maybe it was before that time as there he had a consultancy working for the state uh, government of New South Wales to review the Sydney, um, basin regional plan, the whole of the Sydney wow. metropolitan area. It had become a political hot potato internally and they decided unusually in those years to get an outside consultant and he somehow got the job. But in the process, he went and lived in five different locations around Sydney, always travelled with taxi drivers, you know, and sort of explored the multiple cities and spaces that Sydney really was rather than the myopic view as he said of the planners sitting in the tower overlooking Hyde Park that they had a view of the city and the suburbs when he said already Parramatta was the the largest retailing centre in Australia and there were what he identified as 21 centres in Sydney that had city level function. You know, so he was an iconoclast in in many different ways within the planning profession, but he was also a beekeeper and uh, totally, you know, hands-on uh, person. Uh, you know, so he that that practical doing as well as um, you know design and thinking. And incidentally, I just had a flashback of a, there was a permaculture convergence in Sydney some years back, and it was it was pretty amazing because Harkai came and Bill Morrison was ah, there, yes. and you were there, and um, Peter Andrews was there from Natural <laughs> Sequence Farming. And I remember Peter talking about how Harkai, I think early on, had actually helped him get started with Natural Sequence Farming. Yeah, well, I think the connection was that Hakai was asked by the bankers who were funding uh, Andrews and he was in financial difficulties and that the, I think it was the bank, uh, the Westpac Bank asked Hakai to assess whether this guy's stuff had any validity and he got to know Andrews really well and he said, yeah, this is absolutely fundamental. And I remember Hakai telling me about it long before, you know, Andrews became, you know, better known. Uh, but they were two very strong characters and not atypically they had, they had a sort of falling out uh, later. It, my understanding of that was actually that, that Hakai saw that Andrews' insights included a lot of Indigenous knowledge. And Hakai thought, he should acknowledge that more strongly because Hakai was very strong on that Indigenous mm-hmm. knowledge, but he was also so uh, challenging in, in thinking about all of those things uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as well. 
yeah, so he was a, a sort of big influence on my uh, the whole design process. In 1979, he encouraged me to uh, get a camera and record what I see in the landscape. So he sort of really put me on that lifelong journey of uh, reading, reading landscape. And I certainly, that began also my, um, how I applied that in my consultancy work of how do you look at landscape using the, the, the skills of reading landscape, but also then in time trying to design uh, in ways that is sensitive to not just the form of the land, but the actual different types of land, recognising that first. So using that land systems approach, which had mainly been used at a macro scale, bringing it down to a much smaller scale of um, uh, permaculture uh, sites to say, okay, you know, where's the changes in the land and understanding those first and mapping those before you, you, you start sort of carving up the land into its um, uses or allocating it to, yep, yep. to different and, things. And of course, you're well and truly into the domain of design process here where the key, key part of it has to be deeply immersing in what's already there, what's happening, what are, the, yeah. what are the land units. So, I mean, the first really big project in a, uh, applying that was uh, my mother's property on the south coast of New South Wales because it was... 180 acres of forest. There were 12 different eucalypt species, had three gullies on it and boundary to a permanent creek. Uh, And um, uh, two different geologies. um, And uh, as I analysed it in uh, a case study booklet that we produced on it called Permaculture in the Bush, it had three different land systems. Mm -hmm. And I sort of used that macro stand back from look at the big patterns first before going down into the details, looking across the landscape and saying, okay, where are potential house sites? Identifying five of those and um, and then checking them against different criteria. So I started, yeah, that sort of using... Um, uh, ways of scoring things to come to complex decision-making where is rather than getting locked into single-factor design, which so a lot of those sort of processes. And it was also interesting as a design process for me in that I had the contour maps and I had photographs my mother had taken and I had her to interrogate, but I actually didn't get to the property for six months into the project. So I was, you know, because I was in Tasmania and then we were back in Western Australia selling the family home. And when we finally arrived at the land and drove down this bush track, I already knew what was around the corner from just going over contour maps and trying to get another bit of information. It was squeezing more information out of it. So it was a a very sort of weird experience, but a very useful one in terms of design process to 
explore something that closely through indirect means and then, yeah. you know, and then set up camp, you know, and that very process of, no, don't make any assumptions. You know, you've got a whole lot of stuff in your head. You know, none of it means anything at the moment, you know. So that process of how do you actually set up a basic camp and and the first lesson about, oh, yes, don't set it up on the best spot because <laughs> that could be where you're actually going to develop. And, yes. Yeah. You know, so... I mean, there was also a huge number of practical learnings there in directing earthworks um, and building, uh, directing other people's work in in building a passive solar house. I worked a lot in in that side, and I I was actually really passionate about passive solar design. So, ironically, that that project was also um, quite a consolidation with me as, in in practitioner terms, as an ecological builder more than an ecological farmer. Mm-hmm. It took me many years to sort of look back and say, well, actually, you know, <laughs> sort of, I've been more of a a builder, and more of my design work has involved, if you like, a lot of the non-living elements, the infrastructure, mm-hmm. earthworks, and. Uh, water supply systems and uh, fencing and all that infrastructure as well as with with building and you know that uh, knowledge base from the practical arts of woodworking and the processing of of timber from tree to saw milling drying processing using timber was a greater development of skill in that area than than I did with horticulture, let alone animal husbandry. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so that sounds like that was a that, that step from you're already very hands on, done a lot of building and stuff, but to then be working with contractors as well, which is another step, and, and yeah. work, kind of working indirectly through them or collaborating. Well, ways. it was mostly uh, friends working at mates' rates, yep. jack of all trades. Mm. There, so it, it was the beginning of that sort of. Um, artisanal sort of building process and definitely doing a lot of thinking things through and planning on paper Mm -hmm. and then being prepared to change the design. And of course, when you are actually doing something yourself that you have gone to huge efforts to put on paper, but you see yourself as a learner and you are at the receiving end, it's, it's it's very clear that you will change the design. <laughs> Whereas when it is separated and there is someone invested with the authority of being the designer and this person, the builder or someone down further down the chain is experiencing the disconnect between the design and reality, there's a power relationship, a whole lot of investment that it's hard to sort of bring that through unless of course those designers very deliberately work in yes. in that way yeah. yeah it's almost like with like in that model when there's a clash between reality and design the native inclination is to try and make design win yeah <laughs> which of course ultimately cannot do this is cool i'd be really keen to hear 
about the transition into because you talked about how you'd done some sound like more informal consultancy back in Tasmania and going mm. through the properties, but the transition into professional yeah. design consultants is that is that an appropriate thing to yeah tell us about next? Yeah, because really that project uh, on the south coast in New South Wales was really the final or most important project that really led to me setting up Holmgren Design Services as a registered business in 1983, just a a couple of years after um, completed uh, the initial phase of development um, with my mother of, of the property. And also the documentation uh, that I took to the first permaculture convergence in 1984 uh, of a case study of that property. I presented two things. One was a paper on reading landscape, which I saw was trying to convey to the young permaculture movement where people had already, there was four years of people having done the early permaculture design courses rushing out as enthusiastic people trying to design the world, not necessarily <laughs> being uh, making a very good job of that. And I was, I was trying to sort of introduce the idea that the skill in reading landscape is one of the core skills for a permaculture designer, having to come onto a site where people don't necessarily have a deep multi-generational historic connection with the land, where there's not necessarily good mapping of soils or, you know, even topography, even decent contour maps, and having to advise design decisions and uh, needing to be able to read a lot of things very quickly in the landscape. So there was that, and there was the case study, because I saw that there was a lot of the talk-to-do ratio in the permaculture movement felt to me quite high. The talk-to-do ratio, yeah. Yeah, that's what Hakai <laughs> called it. He talked about how the talk-to-do ratio was higher in Australia than New Zealand. Right. Much higher in America, he said. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got to say, I, do, I, I have another flashback. At that time I, I, I met him in Sydney, when he got up to speak, he talked about the, how the reason no one ever saw him is because he very rarely goes to... Convergences because he prefers to be doing yeah. <laughs> and minimise the talking. So he was walking, walking his own talk there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the case study documentation of places that had been permaculture designed and then implemented rather than just things where people were saying, oh, there, there is something that illustrates permaculture ideas. Mm. Uh, great, that, that's really good. But was permaculture actually influencing how that came about? Because that, that's that next test of the concept. Can people use these ideas to actually end up creating what are appropriate systems that reflect permaculture ethics and design principles? Yes. And so then to sort of document that design process and... Um, uh, and how that was sort of implemented. So I saw it as important as a sort of at an ethical level of of uh, being guinea pigs, of mm-hmm. trying out your ideas mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, and so those uh, that 
yeah, was all happening around that same time. And in 84, I also went back to New Zealand and worked with Hakai uh, again and through the um, the New Zealand Tree Crops Association working on this, how do these ideas apply to actually implementing the transformation of pastoral landscapes into uh, multi-purpose uh, tree crop um, uh, dominated landscapes. Would you be able to just say a brief word? I know you've talked to me in the past about how you, you grew up in a very free-thinking, kind of rational, intellectual household, and, and you've told me a few stories over, over the years about how during your time with Harkai, he bought, like he'd, get, he'd give you spontaneous lectures about Laozi, and he bought a sort of Eastern mysticism flavour. Did that have any... Yeah. Impact or bearing or relevance to design process? Ah, yeah. Well, actually, that reminds me, yes, of uh, a, a story I have told a, a, a few times. I suppose I would see myself growing up as a super rationalist. Even as a child, I would wake up and not remember any of my dreams, probably because the dream world was like just too inconsistent with, with reality. And there were a few things that broke down that process. The primary one was the experience of, of LSD made it clear to me there were more things in the human mind that could possibly be comp- comprehended through simple sort of reductionist <laughs> uh, uh, methods. But another marker in that was certainly working with Hakai, setting up this site for these uh, workshops over Easter in 1979 on a high country grazing property and we were looking at okay where are people going to park where's the sort of the camp kitchen going to be where's the the sauna by the stream and you know just designing a sort of a small festival space and both of us as designers you know just running through all the factors and you know like oh yeah but what about this and then you know circulation here or you know like what if that's wet and (laughs) etc anyway we got to a sort of a bit of a a stumbling point where there was this one option over here and one there and we'd sort of run through a few of the factors and Hakai said oh this is a case for the coin <laughs> and pulls out a coin <laughs> and flips it <laughs> heads tails <laughs> and I was like flabbergasted you know on this idea that you could actually make a decision a design decision based on the flip of a coin and then he sort of gave me this lecture about the I Ching and a whole lot of ideas in Eastern mysticism about firstly connecting to what, what at a deeper level, uh, you, your feelings about what is the right thing. And part of it is your reaction to the chance decision. Uh, um, but also that, yeah, you uncover some sort of, you know, different way of accessing um, uh, part of understanding. Uh, so that was sort of, a, a, you know, one of the stepping stones in that sort of breakdown of that um, super rationalist control. Another one was actually when I was working uh, with my mother on developing the property, the early stages of the design, and we had identified which where the house site is going to be on this 180 acres, and and looking at gravity feed, um, water supply, dam site options, all sorts of different factors, and it was all sort of 
fairly thick regrowth logged over bush site that we'd chosen. So it actually involved clearing uh, quite a lot of trees and a lot of thick regrowth. And I'd been working through with my inclinometer, looking at tree heights and, you know, because you're talking about forest trees that were 35 metres tall. And, okay, where, how are we going to make the clearing minimising and retention of trees that want to keep and get sun, full sun access into the passive solar building and full winter sun access to gardens. Um, and you're trying to do that through thick young regrowth and big emergent trees. And I'm sort of using the inclinometer, looking up at tree canopies, sun angles, you know, working backwards and forwards. And this is over a period of more than a week wandering around in the bush. And in the meantime, my mother had wandered in and, and found this old box that had been left with some rubbish. And she stood up and she said, oh, I reckon the house should be about there. <laughs> and as I worked around, I ended up coming back to where the box was. <laughs> now, it may have been sort of completely dumb luck, but, you know, it was that sort of, finally that, that rational evidence-based process actually somehow connecting with something that came completely intuitively. And that's it. That's part one of the conversation. I very much look forward to following up and sharing part two with you in a couple of weeks. Uh, please make a comment. I'd really love to see some active engagement with these ideas, with the story. Um, if you feel any gratitude for the work that went into this, please go to makingpermaculturestronger.net and, and just leave a comment sharing whatever it is, whether it's anything you agree with, disagree with, how you feel, what, what it might mean for your own practice, whatever it is. That would be greatly appreciated. Uh, and that's where I'll leave it for this episode. Catch you soon.